Welcome back to this week's edition of Sony Music's Time to Talk. I'm your host, Sean Sennett, and I'm very excited this week. We've got Pete Murray joining us for a conversation. Um, Pete's got a really great new EP out at the moment called The Night. I went to see Pete in his studio, and I took the uh, the music with me for the long drive down there. And I've got to say, I loved it. Great singing, great songs. That's kind of the hallmark of what Pete does. Love the rhythms on this record, the strings, the girls. You might have heard Found My Way already, which has just been played everywhere. And uh, yeah, it was great just chatting to him and sitting down and hearing about things, sort of going way, way back to his very early days in music, his early days as a kid, how he found his way into music. Some great stories in there. Now, the thing about Pete is, when I first met him, he'd sold a few hundred records. In fact, he may not have even been signed when we first connected, but now he's sold over a million records. And he shares his thoughts on the modern world in terms of uh, streaming, how people consume music, has some advice for people who are looking to do it themselves too, if you tune into that. But we started off just chatting off mic about how um, cool it is when artists talk about other artists and, you know, help share an audience and so forth. And he mentioned a great little story about uh, the guys from U2 loving his music and a journalist telling Pete that, but the journalist didn't put it in the story. And I thought, wow, it's too good not to share. So we kick off with Pete telling that anecdote and then we go into the interview. So sit back and enjoy some time with Pete Murray. I did an interview with someone, I can't remember who it was now, over in, in England and um, it was an Aussie girl and she was just, this is when you 2 came out to it here. It must have been around 2005 or six because the opportunity in Better Days had come out in that album, yeah. See the Sun, and you 2 were here. And I remember getting the guys from Sony saying, hey, um, it was, we got a call today from Bono, like a direct call from Bono to the label saying, hey, I want to get... Um, Pete Murray's albums, can you send them send them over? Which were just two albums back then. Feeler Pete, that's and, unbelievable. I know. So, and our guys are going, oh, it's really embarrassing because we've actually only copies we've got is ones that you've signed, you know, and we felt a bit embarrassed to, to give them to Bono. I said, oh, he won't care. But <laughs> at the, um, I, the, the, the female journalist who I was talking to, she, in London a couple of weeks later, she said, oh, I just, I did an interview with, um, with uh, Bono and The Edge and all they wanted to talk about was, was your songs and how good your music was and stuff. And I'm like, but you didn't print it. God, why wouldn't you print that? That's like, I'm, I was so rapt to hear that, you know. Wow. And she didn't print it. I don't know why. But um, any, I think anyone, any big international star yeah. like that, that is saying positive things about yeah. any Aussie artist, you would go, I'm going to print this because that's absolutely big, big news. Yeah. Getting that imprimatur would just turn more people onto your music. Exactly, yeah. So, Pete, here we are, mate. We're in uh, your bat cave, hidden away over the border. Yeah. <laughs> um, I've got to say, it's very impressive. You just played me some tracks from the new EP, I mean, congratulations. Uh, driving through hinterland country, listening to that record, just perfect setting, perfect music. Well done. Thanks, mate. Yeah, look, I'm, I'm really happy with it. You know, it, uh, it's good having the own studio, my own studio here, and um, it's great. You know, I'm really happy with the way that the, the songs came out. Um, getting really positive feedback on, you know, for not many people have heard it so far, the mm. EP that is. But, um, you know, the first single's out, and uh, that's, you know, getting – Fantastic response, you know. Well, it's interesting because I kind of feel in a privileged situation to chat to you because I remember uh, seeing you as an unsigned artist. Mm. I remember playing gigs. There was a gig down near. We played a gig there, yeah. Down near Powderfingers Rehearsal Studio down on Vulture Street there. Yeah. I remember we played and you came on with like, it felt like an eight piece band or something <laughs> right. before you were signed. It was huge. And I remember you told me the first record came out. I think you said you sold under 800 copies and then boom, 
it happened. Everybody knew who Pete Murray was. And you've been remarkably consistent in terms of releasing music. And this EP is just coming out now, The Night, yeah. which I love. I mean, the production of it, uh, your voice is the ace in the sleeve as always. I wanted to ask you um, why have you decided to do an EP and a series of singles uh, versus a traditional album? Where's that come from? Uh, well, firstly, the, there is an album that has been recorded. Ah. Uh, the, but um, to put an album out these days is kind of a little bit old school. And then the way that the streaming works now is, and I mean, this is the future, I think, you know, hitting the, the streaming world. You've got to give yourself every opportunity to get your songs out there and be heard. So the way that that works is that you're best to put out a song mm. uh, every couple of months so that, that you know, that gets um, enough time to try and get onto to playlists and things like that. And, uh, you know, with it, it, what happens is if I was to put out uh, maybe the old traditional ways have two to three singles mm. and then you drop an album, every song off the album is considered old as the minute it comes out. So they, yeah. so, so Spotify or yeah. um, Apple Music, they won't go back to an old song. They only want new songs that have never been heard before. So they don't want fresh songs. Otherwise, they won't waste the time trying to get that onto playlists. So it, things, times have changed, you know. So we're mm. going to do two EPs. There's going to be an EP that comes out in October. We'll have four singles that will come off that and then it'll be a six-track EP. So there's two songs that will be on there that mm. may not necessarily get the attention that the first four will get, other, only that the fact that they will be probably considered old straight away. So, yeah. But people discover them, you know, I think, and they're, they're all great songs on there. It's actually, for me, hard to pick four off, those, off that six to, to put out. Well, that's the thing with the EP. I've been lucky enough to hear it, as I said, and it's very, very consistent. Um, what impressed me, apart from your voice, which I said is the ace in the sleeve every time you make a record, uh, production's very fresh. Uh, the songs, I wondered how many songs you'd written to narrow it down to six. Are you a guy that's writing all the time? Uh, I've got three kids now, Sean, so I don't, <laughs> don't get a chance to write all the time. I, I have to really do it in, in stages. So whenever I've got a spare minute, I'll kind of jump in and try and put something down or I'll give myself a – with this particular time, I actually had um, two weeks where I went over to uh, LA and, and Nashville and I did some co-writing. It was the first time I've done some co-writing. I did a couple of tracks uh, on the – uh, Camacho album last time with with John Hume, local guy John Hume, uh, who's a great singer songwriter, and uh, so that's the only time I really experienced doing co-writes before. So I did two weeks, one in a week in LA, a week in Nashville, got together with some guys and and um, did a bunch of songs. I also did a lot of songs on my own here first. So there's a good collection of uh, the co-writes and also the stuff that I've done myself, and um, it's interesting. I think it just kind of pushed me in a bit of a direction to just, I don't know, do something a little bit fresh, you know? Well, I thought it was interesting because, you know, you look at the credits, you know, 99 times out of 100, they're written by Pete Murray. Yep. What was it like for you getting on the plane, going to meet, was it uh, Gavin Slate over there in Nashville? Yep, yep. Sitting down in a room with a guy that I assume you may not have met before? Or? No, I've never met any of these guys, so I was nervous. Yeah. Yeah, I was nervous because, I, like I said, I've always just written my own songs and I've had the time and I've never felt the pressure. If I'm not getting something, then, I, you know, you just, you just put it down and come back to it another day. Don't have that luxury of you know the time over there, so you've got to get something done in that moment. I was going to ask you how it worked. I mean, as a songwriter, you're obviously always stockpiling ideas. Do you turn up with a thread of an idea, or do you basically turn up cold? A couple of different situations happen over there. I the first uh, session I went into, I pretty much I had a I wanted to come in with something. I was just nervous, mm. I think, and 
I uh, worked with David Ryan Harris, who's John Mayer's guitarist. David's a great guy, great songwriter. And so I was nervous, you know, I thought I want to come to this with something. So I pretty much had all the music written and uh, I just wanted to, I think I nervously asked him, what do you think about this? Can we, you know, want to start with this? And he said, yeah, that's great. Keep going. So I kind of pretty much, I was so nervous, I think I pretty much wrote 99% of the song. <laughs> and Dave was just kind of on the tools. He was, you know, working, recording stuff as we went. And he's, he had some great little suggestions along the way. But I remember coming out of that session going, I pretty much wrote most of that song. Yeah. I'll, I'll just, I might just kick back on the next one and see what happens. So I went to the next session without anything. I did have some ideas, but mm. um, before I could even play them to the guy who I wrote with there, he had, look, I've got this idea. And the song we did was If We Never Dance Again, which is a, a big sounding song. And as soon as he played that, he said, I've got this chorus idea, um, which is, you know, played on the piano. Uh, if, if I never see your face again with it was the lyrics that he that he had and um, he said this is all I've got and I loved it straight away so that's great so we just took that and um, finished that song you know and pretty much most of the song that day but we didn't quite get it all there and it felt good enough I cancelled another a, a writing session to go back and finish that song because I just thought the, the quality of that one was it's a, it's a big song and I thought I needed to get that one done yeah, I'm kind of curious about uh, your songwriting process I mean I talked to a guy like Ross Wilson that wrote Eagle Rock and he had the riff Great lying song. around for years. You're right. I love that song. Great song. And then you read interviews with, say, Paul McCartney. He says that he and John Lennon just would give themselves three hours, mm. have to write a song. Mm -hmm. So are you a guy that carries ideas around for years or do you like to set a deadline and finish things? No, I just probably like Lennon and McCartney. I think you just jump in and get things done. Okay. Um, but in that moment, if I don't finish something, it might sit for a little while. But mm. no, mm. that's where I kind of just go, yeah, here's the um, – Here's the idea. I think there's pretty much most of the songs I've done are like that. Uh, I've always written the music first and the lyrics come second. The only other song that I've done it the opposite way is I was in Canada backpacking years ago before I even kind of became anything decent on the guitar. Um, I wrote the song Bail Me Out, which is a song off the Feeler album. Mm. I did the lyrics for that and then uh, came back and wrote the music for it later. It's the only song I've done that way. But every song is kind of, you know, I write on the fly and I'll do the music and then have a melody and then add the lyric to the to the melody. I mean, I'm curious too how it works these days because uh, Nick Cave was saying recently he used to have all these volumes of notebooks. Mm. He hasn't got one notebook now. It's all on a computer. Exactly. You, so you're bashing ideas into a I've laptop? Still got, I've still got notebooks as well. But no, you're straight on the computer now. Right. And it, because the good thing is, I mean, I know there are so many songs I've actually got there and I've actually written the chords down. I'm going, how does that go? <laughs> How does the melody go? You know, and you've got no idea. So the, the good thing is what I actually do is on the computer on iMovie is I'll yeah. film myself so that you can see what you're doing, you know, yeah. and not kind of going, oh, what is that? I've got to work out what's, what's that part, what's that yes. little riff. So you can see exactly what you're doing and then you can go back to it later and go, oh, okay, that's that, you know. So that's how I do it. You know, it's interesting. I, I look at your early bios and they say uh, Pete Murray likes Nick Drake, mm. Bob Dylan, Neil Young. I look at recent things people have written about you and they mention those same three artists. Mm. I mean, those artists are giants. And mm. I definitely hear elements of Nick Drake in your delivery, beautiful warmth that you've got. How important are those kind of touchstones for you, those kind of artists to go back and listen to? To maybe, Do they still light a fire under you for your own work? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I think that they're some of the best uh, artists that, are, that have ever you know, been around. Um, and I love that style of music. So for me... You know, uh, I like I like acoustic music. I love electric music as well. This time around, I still, you know, I got into like JJ Kale, 
kind of I've started to get into a bit more groove stuff. It just kind of the songs groove a little bit more. I really love mm. that. And on the last album, Camacho album, I started to get into the songs that have a little bit more groove to it. Um, and this particular album, we've got Grant Garethy playing drums. Grant's a good mate of mine. He the last four or five years he's been playing with John Butler. So but Grant's a local guy around here. We surf together quite a bit. And he's just a great groover. So, mm. you know, he came in and laid the tracks down for this and it's just the songs have this nice little floating, mm. you know, feeling to them. It's funny you mention um, JJ Kale. When Paul Kelly did his last record, he said he just used JJ Kale as a template. Whatever famous album it was, it was like 35 minutes long, no filler, just all groove, do that. Yep, yep. It's great. I mean, look, I'm not a big fan of fillers myself. You know, I think I've, uh, it's one thing I do uh, get, hear people saying about my albums that there's no fillers on there. They're all mm-hmm. may not have any number one hits, but you know, they're, they're, <laughs> it's uh, it's a solid body work, which is what I kind of pride myself on having a really, you know, a, a great album. Uh, and in a way, it's kind of sad that albums don't exist anymore. Um, well, they do, sorry, but but it's changing, you know. So, uh, you know, people just want to hear the hit singles and I find it's not always the hit songs that are the greatest, you know. It's those songs that on the albums that you that you hear or discover that, yeah. are the, that are the great ones. Well, history's kind of proved that, hasn't it? I mean, quite often you look at, you know, a song, something like Kaysan, for example, mm. it's almost the national anthem. Yeah. I think it got to number 44 on the charts. Did it? But right. over time, you know, yeah. it becomes more loved by people. And I think also, you know, streaming too. Like you don't have to have the big commercial hit single anymore. It's like mm. it's just wherever the song fits, mm. it's going to find its place, you know, and that's the, um, pardon the pun, on the first single title, but the, <laughs> it will find its place. I mean, that's yeah. I think the beauty of music now is it's you give it life, it just it, it lives and you don't know where it's going to end up. The thing that struck me about the record is um, here I am, I'm calling it a record. Yep. You know, for me, it's still a record. It's certainly a record of a time in your life. Yep. It feels very personal. And there was a couple of lines that jumped out. Trust that your compass won't lead you astray. Yep. And that's a beautiful line. Yep. Elsewhere, the future will find a way. Yep. Um, it feels, I get the impression, tell me if I'm wrong, that you're writing about your life and your experience. Well, that's from Found My Place. Yeah. And, and that is, um, I used my own life as, a, as the inspiration for the lyrics in that one. And uh, the direction that I started to take that was giving, passing on wisdom to to someone younger, uh, obviously someone that you really care about. In my case, it was like, what would I say to my kids, you know? Mm. Uh, how could you explain to them that life is tough, you know? Life's not easy. Um, for those of us that have, you know, grown up in normal families, I guess you kind of do feel that, oh, life's going to be great, you know, everything's going to fall into place and you're excited and... Mm. And it, life is good, don't get me wrong, it's great, but it's also tough and it's challenging. And so to get what you want, you have to really work hard at things and, and to expect, so that's really about expecting that there will be um, a lot of no's thrown at you. People won't want, you know, won't like what you're doing. People won't agree with what you're doing. But the important thing is to trust your own gut instinct and to be true to yourself and then, you know, things will fall into place and that's what you've got to do. Um so for that, you know, for me, it's and that's my life. Like in, I remember when I went to a, a key music mm. little seminar for a, 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 as I was managing a band called Palladium. That's how I first kind of started. Were you managing Palladium? Yeah, for for a short time. Well, right. actually, they didn't last very long anyway. But it was uh, uh, it was where I kind of first got into the original music, you know. And I was doing a little bit myself, but started managing those guys, and I got more into it. <clears throat> and um, I went and did a a manager's. Uh, uh, forum at the, yes. with Q Music 
And I can't think of Rose was the name. Rose was the lady who, who put that on and she, she came out and said, look, to be successful in the music business, you need three things. And I remember thinking, wow, this is great. I'm getting the paper and pen out and I'm one, two, three. I've written it down. They're ready to write these things down. Back then it was no phones, you know. Yeah. And she said, you need persistence, persistence, persistence. And I'm like, wow, that's just, that's true and that's what you need. You have to keep going. So the whole thing about this song is that you, you need to be persistent. You need to yeah. trust that you will follow your compass because it's going to lead you where, you where you need to go. Be true to yourself and, and trust your own um, instincts. So have you had people during the early days of your career saying, Pete, you should do a dance record, you should be doing this, you should be – because you've always been Pete Murray. Yeah. Oh, all the time you get people that uh, not necessarily dance, but, you know, like yeah. you, but you, when you work with someone, uh, whether it be anyone in the studio with you um, – a producer or, you know, even just other guys mm. in the band. Everyone has their own opinion on what what you should be doing. And, um, you know, I've had to uh, stick to my guns with what I want. And mm. I think the only, you know, there's been a couple of times where I haven't probably listened to myself and I've listened to other people and they're the, they're the things that you regret because they're the things you always look back and go, ah, oh, that's not really what I wanted. And so now I try to just, you know, I'll listen to people mm. and I'll try things. Mm. Uh, but if I don't like it, then I just that's, I don't go down that path. So you grew up as a kid in Chinchilla. Mm-hmm. So that's the Western Downs, right? Yep. What, 300 k's out of Brisbane possibly? Uh, yeah, it's about a four-hour drive from Brisbane. What was it like being a kid in Chinchilla with no mobile phone? <laughs> well, mobile phones didn't exist back then, did they? <laughs> um, look, I had some great mates and I think the um, I, I spent the first nine years of my life in a place called Miles, which was another half an hour past Chinchilla. So, you know, I rem- remember just didn't know anything different or anything mm. better than, you know, it was country town was like where I grew up. That was my life. Um, school was, was good, you know, I had some good mates out there. And I think once I got to grade, I remember my mum and dad threatening to send me to boarding school because I was always kind of lazy and I wasn't mm. doing things. I wasn't trying that hard at school and I was, I was going okay, but I just knew I just needed to pass. That's all. I was happy with that. So they were kind of like getting a bit frustrated. We're going to send you to boarding school. And I was like, no, no, I'm not going to go. Got to grade 10, towards the end of grade 10, and I, and I asked them, can I go to boarding school? Because I wanted more. And, you know, I was really into my sport mm. and I wanted to um, challenge myself, you know, get out of the comfort zone, go to the city, went to Brisbane. And I remember a teacher saying to me at school, you know, Peter, the uh, you know that you're a, you're a big fish in a little pond here because I was good at sport and I was kind of yeah. very well known for my sporting abilities yeah, there. Yeah. You know, you're a big fish in a little pond here. Don't you think that would be better to stay as a big fish in a little pond rather than go and be a little fish in a big pond? And I'm like, no way. I want to go and be the big fish in a bigger pond. That's what my goal is. So I'd already outgrown Chinchilla and I wanted to to move on from that and, and experience more. So that was the exciting thing about going to Brisbane and going to boarding school and being able to, uh, you know, meet different people and, and to, um, you know, on the sporting fields to compete against other guys who are, you know, at that uh, elite level. So you were a rugby player, obviously. I did swimming, athletics and, and rugby. So they were kind of my sports. Swimming was the first one I got rid of um, when I I went, I went to Nudgee. I didn't really um, swim, even though I got in there on, yeah. on my swimming ability. Um, I didn't really try it, the swimming. I was into, uh, interested in athletics and, and rugby. And, and did you think at that point you might become a professional sportsman? Yeah, that was my goal. I, I you know, had goals of competing at the, either the Commonwealth Games mm-hmm. or the, or the – um, Olympic Games for the either the you know the four hundred or eight hundred, and um, I was competing at the at the nationals at schools, you know, and 
think the best I did in the 800 at, at the Nationals was a third place. Mm -hmm. I probably should have won it that day, but I remember we didn't know much about, I was in Chinchilla. I remember we came down and we didn't know anything about diet, you know, and I remember we went to Pizza Hut for lunch and my final was at like, you know, two or three in the afternoon. So I came in and I was so full of pizza and I felt really sick, you know. So I ran this final and I, I ran about um, I think my best time that year was 156 and the winner did it in 158 Yeah, and I did 159 and I was just kind of a bit upset because I yeah, you know, I probably that was my chance, but we didn't didn't know any better. Having pizza, so so you uh, think the garlic bread could have cost you? <laughs> I think it did, mate. I was struggling to stay awake. Hey? It was a, it was a tough one. So, w which is the knee that gave in? Uh, well, they're both gone, but the, oh. the right one was the one I did. Um, so, getting away from athletics, I got sick of athletics and mm. went to play rugby. Mm. Uh, and I was playing the sevens, sevens tournament, which is what I was good at because I was kind of fit, mm. fitter than a lot of the other the rugby players. So there was a chance of um, uh, making the, the Australian side to go to the Hong Kong sevens uh, years ago, and I did this tournament um, and I injured my posterior cruciate. Now, posterior is not too bad. You can still play with it. Uh, and so one of the selectors said, look, you know, we're interested in, in you um, being in the team, but we'd like to see you in another tournament. And a couple of the other selectors want to see you play. Bob Templeton was one. Bob was the Wallabies coach back then. So, and I said, well, look, you know, um, I, I'm happy to go and play. Um, I'll have to strap my knee up, but I'm happy to go and play. But I'll only do it if, if Bob's interested, then tell him to call me. And uh, otherwise I'm just going to get physio and I'll just wait and I'll come back at the end of the year. So I was living with my sister at the time and I didn't get a call from Bob, so I didn't think about it. So I just thought, oh, that's it, I won't go. I'll just go and get some physio. And, and let it go. About a week after the tournament, um, my sister goes, oh, someone called for you the other day. Uh, who's that? She said, oh, um, what was his name? Bob Templeton. I'm like, <laughs> you're kidding? So, <laughs> so I kind of, you know, years later I, I met Bob because the, the Wallabies actually got me to go and play over in, in yeah. Paris at, at the World Cup. Wow. Once they got knocked out, I went and played for them. Yeah. And Bob was there. So I remember talking to him about that story and he said, you know what, I actually remember that. Uh, and um, I called and I spoke to your sister, never heard back from you. <laughs> so I well, there was a reason for that. Well, so, you, well, you still made the World Cup, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. I made that, yeah. So, but, you know, things, I think that was just, uh, that's fate and the way it was, was it worked out for me. So 22, you picked up a guitar. Yeah. And so what, what was the, uh, were you learning covers? Were you writing from the get-go? What were you doing? Yeah, just covers at first. I mean, you know, it was, I had a friend of mine who was, uh, studying teaching and I was studying natural medicine mm. and we were living together and he just came into my room one day and said, you know what, I want to, I'm going to get a guitar lesson. I've always wanted to play the guitar and I'm finally going to do it. So I thought that sounds cool. I've never thought about that, but that sounds really cool. I might do the same. So it turns out I went and did the lesson and he never did. Uh, and we, and sadly, a couple of years later, he passed away at an aneurysm, passed oh, away. His name was Charlie and I named my first boy after him. After yeah. Him. So good mate, and I believe in fate. I believe that I was meant to meet him, and he got me into playing the guitar. So that was kind of all meant to be. Wow! Because there was just no music in my life at all before that. So. It's interesting. I always feel that you were the first artist I ever came across that went viral before the okay, kind of the before viral was a thing. Yeah, because I, I remember uh, I'd meet people from major record companies going, "Have you heard about this guy Pete Murray?" This was probably maybe before the game came out. I remember getting physio once, right. scapula, 
and the physios just pounding me and going, have you heard this guy, Pete Murray? <laughs> I'm thinking <laughs> something's going to happen for Pete Murray. <laughs> how, how important was getting a deal with a major label for you? That was obviously the big bang in terms of reaching a larger audience. Yeah, look, it was very important. And I think at the time I was very nervous about it because I was very – I was all about being an independent artist and I thought that's, you know, where I want to be. And I was all yeah. about credibility and keep your credibility. And But it got to the point where, you know, it was um, getting older and uh, I, and I was, didn't have much money and I had, I had no money basically. And I think, you know, I'd been trying to do the the independent thing and it was slowly getting better. I was getting good reviews. The game had mm. been out. And I think I sold about, had 1,500 copies. I think we probably sold, yeah, whatever, about 1,000 or something. Mm. And... Um, then the we got an interest from the label, and that went cold again for a while, and then they came back on board again. It just the way it worked out is when I first did the game, I did like a four track um, disc, and through another friend, they knew someone that was working at Sony in the accounts department or something. So they said pass it to him, and he can just pass it on to the right guy. So I did that. This was probably twelve months earlier. Oh wow! So then the game came out, Stu McCulloch. Yeah. Uh, who was a for Sony, got mm-hmm. in touch with me and, and he said, can you give me some copies of the game, which he started to pass around the, the office. They went missing. Stu called me again, <laughs> said, can you give me some more copies? <laughs> and I'm like, okay, mate, please don't lose these because, yeah. you know, I need the money. Yeah. And um, so it was a weird thing because the, the, the guys in the A&R department had lost the, the album. But suddenly this four-track EP was had made its way to the A&R department. So there's guys in Sydney, Stu, Stu was working out of Melbourne and the guys in Sydney called Stu and said, hey, we've just got this this four-track EP from a Pete Murray that's been apparently floating around in the office for the last 12 months and actually for pe- some of the people here are actually really loving it, you know, and then we've just got it. Is this the same guy that's the one you're talking to? And she was like, I think so. I don't know. <laughs> Let's check it out. So it just lined up that that's, this EP had kind of made its way to the the guy's desk anyway. And they'd started listening to it and they'd think, we love it, this is great. And then Stu eventually gave them the the, um, the game, which had those four tracks on it, and they went, okay, it's the same guy. Um, let's get him in for a showcase. So that's how that all worked. And then I got in and played in front of Dennis Hanlon, who's become yeah. a great mate of mine. Dennis is, yeah. you know... Uh, uh, he's the he's the man in the music industry, isn't he? You know, he's yeah. been a bit running Sony for a long time now, and that's remarkable, incredible. Yeah, yeah. So he um, and he was a terrace boy, and I went to Nudgy. So you know, terrace and he didn't Nudgy. hold that against you. <laughs> well, you know, there's <laughs> big rivalry between those two schools. Uh, we're two St Joseph's uh, Catholic colleges, and so you know, we I did the showcase. I knew it went really well. Yeah. You know, and and, and he, Dennis came up to me and he said, um, "That was great." I liked it, you know. And he said, um, so you you went to Nudgy? And I went, yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, I went to Terrace. And I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> so, <laughs> this might not work out too well. And uh, anyway, he was just joking. And we, yeah, I got the deal and that was really important to me, I think, because I was at the point where I had actually, you know, I started studying natural medicine and I actually re-enrolled to finish that off because I didn't think music was going to work. Wow. Right around that time I thought, no, I don't think this is going to work. I need a plan B to be there. Didn't want to give up on the music, but I thought I've reached the point where I don't think I can go any further. Yeah. And um, yeah, a decision had to be made. So then that, he just it was all the right timing. It came in and then suddenly we recorded Feeler and Feeler exploded. Well, it's it's remarkable. Like I said, when we first met, you mentioned mm-hmm. to me you'd sold around 800 albums. Now it's 1.2 million records, which is yeah. a phenomenal achievement. But it's all about 
the quality of the songs and your, and your voice that really resonates with people. Uh, that's where the magic is. And I was, I was curious about the new EP. Um, Garrett Cato was involved. How did you guys connect? Yeah, Garrett uh, is a Canadian, lives here in Australia now, has an Australian wife, two kids. Uh, Garrett, we I'm trying to think where we met. You know, he was busking for a long time on the street. We became friends and he... Um, I think we met at a uh, – we played at a place called The Treehouse here in Byron. Well, so he, he might have been playing a gig and I remember coming in that night watching the show and then at the end, myself and Garrett and, and another local muso, we sat around and just basically passed the guitar around in the in the pub when it was all closed down because we know the owners. Mm. And we are just having a couple of drinks and just kept passing the guitar around, playing guitar, playing songs. And so Garrett um, and I became good mates and he was working uh, in a clothing shop at that stage and he, very talented – singer-songwriter. <clears throat> and so it got to the point where I did a tour and I said, Garrett, do you want to come on the road? And I gave him the opportunity to come on the road and that just opened up everything for him. He, My fans, I knew my fans would love him. He, I think he sold like about $20,000 worth of CDs and he was just like <laughs> on fire. It was just such a good environment for him and we did kind of some theatres and yeah. perfect environment for him to come out and play to my fans and after that it just kind of really opened up for him. And he started doing music full time. Now he's um, he's doing a lot of producing, a lot of local artists now. And he's kind of a really up and coming uh, producer and singer songwriter as well. How long a period did you spend making the record, DP? I probably over the last two years I've been, <clears throat> you know, in the studio doing some demos. Mm. And you know the beauty of having your studio is you can keep the demos and and uh, you can use them down the track. Um, so as in one of the songs off the EP, um, Waiting for This Love, which was recorded, um, you know, uh, a little while ago in the studio, that, you know, it's it's just sat there and um, it was right to, to come out now. And, you know, so you get that chance over the last two years to, to put some songs together and take what I like from those sessions and mm. put them into, um, you know, where they ended up. And uh, so then I ended up getting Garrett to come on, on board and Garrett and I just clicked with what we were doing and our same tastes and music and... You know, he's a really nice, um, the way he records, he gets nice rich tones and I love that. So uh, it was good to sit back on the couch back here and kind of direct things. This is what I want and have someone there, you know, on the yeah. working the tools. It's like can give you those results and great fun. So, so sort of taking us into your working day in the studio, is it like early start, late start? What kind of hours do you keep? Uh, normally get the kids off to school yeah. and then come in. So 9, 9.30, mm -hmm. come in and get things done and then by 3 we've got to be Got to be finished. Got to do the school run. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And what about touring? I mean, uh, obviously with ISO, have you got anything lined up at all? Yeah, we had a bunch of shows lined up um, September, October, November, but we've cancelled them straight away. As soon as that hit, we mm. just cancelled it. And uh, we've rebooked some shows in uh, March, April, May at this stage. So we're still, we don't know if that's going to be going ahead still. I'm hoping that they will. Um, it's hard to tell with it with this corona, isn't it? Because of the, you know, things can change really quickly. And I look at, at Melbourne and, you know, I'm sitting at the moment where the, things are starting to change and Melbourne's in a lot of trouble. So yeah. I just, I can, I hope that we can get the touring done, you know, next year. How important is uh, playing live for you as a songwriter? Do you, obviously these days, I guess, with bootlegging and things, you can't play new songs to people before you've recorded them. Yeah, exactly. I'm careful with, um, I don't play anything, well, I could, I'm lying because I did play a new song live over in um, Europe yeah. last year um, with the guys who I wrote this song with in the UK. 
And so I, I played that, but that's, you know, we've re-recorded since and that will be coming out on the next, the next um, EP. But it's funny, you've got to be careful what you put out because it does, it's just, just streams, you know, so people can sort of put it up and everyone knows it. So there's mm. no real interest if when you put it out then. So you've got to be very careful with that. And what are kind of the hotspots for you in terms of as an artist around the world? Uh, where have you got followings outside of Australia? Uh, look, I haven't had a lot of – I did like a worldwide deal with Sony. We've had some success in the UK um, and Holland, kind of the, the places that, you know, kind of – Yeah, Holland's been, been good for you for a while, hasn't it's it? It's been great, yeah. Yeah. There was one guy that worked for the label over there that really liked the music and he was the, the reason that it that it um, kind of took off. It was just great that I had those guys on board. He just got a little um, publicity team, radio team, and we got um, really great success over there. There was a time when, you know, I was playing some bigger shows and some bigger acts in the world, you know, over in, in Holland. So it was a really a high level for me there. Now, the record's called The Night. Hmm. Why did you settle on that title? There's a lyric in the um, Waiting for This Love, take a long, slow breath the night before I go. So, and I just love that line. You know, I was trying to get something that was relevant to, because we're doing two EPs and I want to join these EPs up. Um, my goal is to have an EP and then have it turn into an album. Mm. So I wanted something that's going to marry. Um, so it's basically the first EP is called The Night mm. and Before I Go is going to be the second one when that comes out. So it's The Night Before I Go. And eventually, if we ever get the chance, we'll put that together as an album and sort of mix things up again. That's the goal anyway. That, that's a pretty powerful uh, image. But what does that pertain to in your life? Well, it's a lot of things, isn't it, really? Like someone said, um, I think it was my wife, she was a bit concerned. She was like, sounds like you're, like you're going to die. Yeah. I was like, well, no, let's hope that doesn't happen. But I think it's um, it just has a, a great meaning and um, for lots of different reasons. So I think that the night before I go, it's just so up in the air. You know, that song mm. is like, what's going to happen? Mm. And it's the same thing with this music. What's going to happen with this music? I don't even know where it's going to go now because the world is so uh, easily accessible now through the streaming. Mm. So, you know, for me it's just a um, has that meaning of where, where is this going, what's happening. And, you know. Yeah, it kind of pertains to the great mysteries that lie ahead yeah. every afternoon, every day, every That's evening, right. doesn't it? Yeah. So what's next for you? I mean, I'm sitting in this studio I mean, I've got to say to people listening, this is like the ultimate Batcave experience for me. I mean, your family must have to drag you out of here. Um, what's coming up after these EPs? Are you thinking about music for the future or? Yeah, well, there's a good batch of songs there already that, you know, the the um, second EP is 99% done, uh, but there's a bunch of other songs there that uh, haven't haven't quite finished yet. So I just want to keep things going. Um, uh you know, I haven't done a greatest hits yet, so you know whether we uh, are going to look at doing that down the track. Mm. Probably, you know, uh, I've been holding off on that. <laughs> I feel like I'm yeah. still too young to be doing a greatest hits thing, but you know, there's 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 things that we can do down the track. I don't know, I don't know yet. I, I'd like to do some uh, um, an acoustic album down the track where it's just really just acoustic, really stripped back, just acoustic and vocal, and yes, maybe a few extra things in there. But to, I haven't done that yet. And that's something I think my fans love me on acoustic guitar, just my, my voice and acoustic guitar. So I haven't done that yet, so that's probably something that I'll, I'll eventually be looking at it somewhere. Well, Pete, thanks for your time. Great to come into this space and just hang out with you and hear some tracks and uh, congratulations on the night. Thanks, Sean. Ah, uh, big thanks to Pete Murray for joining us on this week's edition of Sony Music's Time to Talk. 
I just want to thank a couple of people involved in making this all happen. Dennis Hanlon, Tony Glover, Cassie and Shelley from Sony, Jason Milhouse at Recordworks Studios. And thank you for listening. And we'll be back very soon next week with another episode.